The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Hey, Rockheads! Stop programming your micro-framework and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 294 with guest Colin Miller, recorded live Sunday, November 25th, 2007. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter, and now, bringing world-class expert-led training in C-Sharp, ASP.NET, VB.NET, SharePoint, BizTalk, TeamSystem, and Workflow Foundation on-site to your development team. Details online at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com And by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com And now, the man who swears our guest is not related to Mark Miller, Carl Franklin. Without any pain, gotta get enough points Thank you very much, and welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin in New London, Connecticut, and Richard Campbell's out there in Vancouver, British Columbia. How are you, sir? I'm great, and I'm sure you are, too, because you're here with me. Yeah, isn't that funny how time works? <laughs> it's the last day of Dev Teach. I'm sure we're having a great time. I'm hoping you're here with us, because we love to come to conferences and meet with the guys who listen to our show. Now, uh, Richard, you know, far be it from me to waste people's time with things as mundane as turkey, but I must say, I made the killer turkey at Thanksgiving. Oh, right, yeah. I guess last week was uh, Turkey Week for Americans. It was the month before for Canadians. Yeah, most communists don't celebrate Thanksgiving, so... Nice, thanks very much. So... No, I'm just kidding. I love you, man. (laughs) I love you, and you know, if my life falls apart down here, you know, Vancouver... Is the last place I will go. So nice. Um, no, I'm serious. Uh huh. All right. Well, anyway, the turkey that I made was just unbelievable, and I'm not going to go into the method because this is a show about .NET. But let's just say the the gravy came from stock with brown bones that simmered for about eight hours. Very nice. And that gravy was the hit. The gravy was all about. Well, I'll probably blog about it. But anyway, let's get right into better know a framework. <laughs> Okay, what do you got for me? What I got is a whole lot of love for you. I got a whole lot of love for you. I got the, speaking of time and its properties, I have the time span structure. Oh. Which is in the system namespace, system.timespan, which represents a time interval or a time span, such as it is. And the way you create a time span is by passing into the constructor uh, you know, some combination of hours, minutes, seconds, days, ticks, whatever it is, milliseconds. Um, you know, there's it's overloaded, and from there you can use that uh, in various things that call for time spans. Here's one example of when you'd use a time span. You know that we've been talking to Steve Smith about caching and all of this stuff, and so that's been prevalent on my mind. And yes. the, in the cache object, the system.web.cache. Um, there is a way to add, uh, when you add an object to a, to the cache, one of the things you can do is add a time span 
which is an amount of time that the object has to go untouched before it drops out of the cache. Right. Time-based expiration. Exactly. So, so there is an example where you need to specify a certain span of time, and that's why we have the time span class. So uh, there are other uses for it, of course, but uh, you know, it's one of those simple things that when you need it, you know you really need it. So time span. Awesome. Richard, I understand you have a rather long email for I us I have today. a lengthy email, but it's related to a past show. Cool. Guys, loved your show 291 from Dev Connections, and it was a pleasure to meet you there. Hmm. And by the way, we really do go to conferences, and if you go, you can meet us. Yep. It's true. We'd love to talk to you, and, and we do live shows, like 291, which was a live show, and you can sit in and... and Cheer at the appropriate times, like the folks did when we were at Dev Connections. Yep. Show 291 was great for any number of reasons, but one comment of Richard's particularly caught my attention. The risk of developer burnout or frustration over the perceived lack of concrete accomplishments while spending time working on more esoteric, vague features. Right. I ran into a similar problem on a recent project where I was the sap on tap for <laughs> a poorly scoped, badly estimated feature. It was estimated for three days and ended up taking three months. Hmm. A significant part of the horrific extension was due to the customer making several good business-related changes to the functionality, but the feature still took an awful lot of time to complete. Hmm. Of course, I was talking about burnout when you stick people working on performance tuning, because performance tuning is one of those things where it's very tough to feel like you've done anything, unless you're really into the math of the whole thing. And Kent was saying... There are certain folks who just love that, but I've met plenty who just would rather build features. But you're right, you know, yep. uh, to, to Jim Holmes's comment here, it's really all about if you don't have a clear plan of what you want to do and how what success looks like, you just thrash and thrash and it, it sucks. Yeah. As always, many thanks for making my sucky commute much more bearable and for providing me insight and opinions I might otherwise get regards Jim Holmes. <laughs> P.S. I'm sorry you won't be hitting Code Mash, but I understand you're scared of Ohio in winter. I'll just keep my <laughs> bottle of Longmore single malt to myself, so there. I don't think Richard's afraid of winter weather. <laughs> Dude, Canadian. Come on. Canadian. Yeah. <laughs> yes, we could not go to Code Mash. We were thinking about it, but we couldn't make it work. Yep. And that's just the way it goes. We, uh, we find that uh, we get to reach more people this way, so... Um, you know, and, and, and I say stay that, warm and stay warm. Exactly. But we would gladly, uh, mention the code mash and, and other code camps and things like that. Um, speaking of that, I do remember, I do recall Richard, uh, promising a list of code camps for the .NET Rocks website. Yes. So I think this week I'm going to get to that and uh, make that work. Should be a pretty easy thing to do. And it's funny that there isn't one. I mean, I've looked and looked and looked and there's yeah. no single place. So we might as well be it. And, uh, Anybody listening, if you've got a code camp you like, let us know about it. We will put it on the schedule. Yep. And I'm going to create a page for you where you can submit things and make it easy for you. And, uh, you know, if you're looking around for a new job and uh, you think New York City might be exciting, go to shrinkster.com slash KH6 and see what uh, all the fuss is about, about the uh, New York City tour that Infusion is Offering to people to work in Manhattan and live in an apartment rent-free in New York City for a year. Shrinkster.com slash KH6. And I do note that Shrinkster.com is now again up and running and accepting URLs. And Thanks uh, to your efforts, Mr. Franklin. Thanks to my efforts. Yes. <laughs> thanks to me. It's all about you. It's all about me. Yeah. Good luck with that. And uh, thanks for listening. No, I'm not going to say that. So, shrinks, say it from, edit from good luck with that, and thanks for listening. Let's take that out. So, there you go, shrinkster.com. Please enjoy and please use to your heart's content. Uh, and with that, Richard, let's introduce our guest today. Colin Miller is the product unit manager for the .NET Micro Framework. And as the product unit manager, uh, Colin is responsible for driving Microsoft's initiative to deliver a developer platform for small embedded devices. In this role, Miller manages business plan development, group partnerships, and the overall strategic direction of the .NET Micro Framework platform. 
Working on the .NET Microframework has enabled Miller to enjoy his personal passion for developing small devices and pervasive computing scenarios. Please welcome Colin Miller. Thank you. Thank you. And my first question, which should be the probably the one on anyone's mind, is difference between the micro framework and the compact framework. I guess it's smaller. <laughs> well, it's actually got a number of differences. Smaller certainly is is one of them. Uh, but there is there's there's a fundamental difference in philosophy too that we that we brought to the .NET micro framework. Um, and uh, going back to actually where we even started, we started trying to figure out how we could make this as small as possible because we actually built this for ourselves in in creating very small devices. Okay. And rather than uh, starting from a uh, 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 the notion of bringing .NET to another platform, what we decided to do was actually to make .NET a platform in its own. So one significant difference is that unlike the Compact framework, it actually doesn't necessarily run on another operating system like CE. It runs directly on the metal in a lot of cases. It is the operating system. Huh. It is. Well, we actually refer to it as a bootable runtime to, to distinguish it from a full-up operating system because there are some, some small differences. But it, it certainly controls the execution. Uh, it's got the type system, uh, threading, uh, resource management, all the things that, that, the, that a typical runtime would rely on the underlying operating system for. Interesting. Wow. That is very different. Yeah. Yes. This is not the mobile platform. You know, we, we had Jack Greenfield on the show back, I think, in March, where he talked about how they use software factories to generate these different incarnations of, right. of CE onto these various platforms. And, and I was, and I was sure we were going to go down a similar path. And now okay. you've totally <laughs> blown me out of the water. I have no idea what to talk about now. <laughs> okay. Well, I, I have lots of things to talk about. <laughs> there's, actually, there's, there's actually even more differences than that. I mean, one of the other differences was, uh, as you as you know, CE is is a very uh, it's targeted being extremely compatible with the desktop. Yeah. So right. if they do something, it's like ninety nine point nine percent pure. Mm. Uh, we took a different approach again because we were building something for ourselves and for our small devices, which was to be a great embedded platform first, and then as compatible as we can be after that. As a second as a second priority. And what that's meant is that it means good things in terms of what we've done and added for the uh, for the embedded application developer, and I can go into a lot of that stuff in detail, probably more than you want. Oh no! <laughs> uh, but it also means that there's a little that there's likely to be a little learning uh, as people uh, move to the micro framework. Yeah. So the the s- syntax then with your typical uh, can we use our languages? I mean, this is .NET, right? Can we use? Oh, C absolutely. Sharp or- so we have Maybe a CLR not. which is built from scratch. Uh, so everything we did basically was from scratch because uh, we wanted to make sure our criteria was it had to be as small as possible. Yeah. It had to be uh, power efficient, uh, and it and it had to, uh, but it still had to be as as consistent as we could make it. Wow. And so it was built from the ground up. The CLR was built from the ground up. The only right now the only language that we support is C sharp, but it's fully supported. Uh, well, not fully supported. There are some things like generics that we don't support. Um, but uh, all the standard, uh, all the base uh, language is supported. We do have uh, some some internal implementations of uh, Visual Basic, which we haven't actually rolled out yet. Um, we're a relatively small team, so it's uh, we have to sort of pick and choose what we can actually get into the product. Now, I seem to remember the word tiny CLR coming up in conversation. Does what is that, and and is that the same thing as the microframework? It is where the microframework started. So uh, the tiny CLR was the internal name we used for this initial initial implementation of the oh, CLR. Oh, it is the same thing. It is the same thing. Very cool. Since then, uh, the we've actually started adding a lot of things even beyond uh, just the CLR to the, the to the platform, and as a result, we had to come up with a slightly more generic name. So we we still refer to the, that portion of it as a tiny CLR internally. Because hmm. I remember that was part of the spot watch. It was wasn't it what the spot yeah. was written with? Yeah. So the uh, again, like I said, was we built this for ourselves. The spot watch was the first thing we built it for, and then what we found out once we'd done that was that there was a number of projects inside Microsoft that had need for something like this. So it after the spot watches, it actually shipped on about a million set-top boxes. Really? From MSTV. 
Uh, what they were some older set-top boxes that they needed to upgrade, and they weren't big enough to to uh, support the compact framework. Wow! It's also shipped uh, as as uh, part of the Vista sideshow feature. Now, tell so me that, about that. So that's Vista is, sideshow is a uh, is an extension to Vista that allows you to connect up with uh, small external devices. Some of them are not so external. One of the one of the uh, first implementations was actually just an auxiliary display on the outside of a laptop, which is immensely useful because how many times have you needed yes. to know where your next appointment was and your laptop was shut down? Right. I remember, I seem to recall some of the, um, uh, what is it, the Toshiba uh, tablets having that feature of a, yeah, of a nice little strip on the outside. Right. And the Asus has another one. I don't think I actually sell that Asus in the United States, but I've seen ads for it over in, over in Asia. Uh, so, so that is what they needed was a, a very small, uh, inexpensive, power-efficient device that they could add to a to a laptop without uh, blowing the price out of the water and also without sucking down the power. So, uh, so we built it on the uh, initially on the micro framework. There are devices on other platforms as well that that use the same interfaces, but uh, yeah. that's what the sideshow device is. And additional uh, devices from that we've done with partners include. Things like the receiver platform and the Garmin uh, navigation devices for the MSN Direct services run on the micro framework. Ah. So it actually it was out in a number of devices before we uh, before we decided to commercialize it, which is actually why the uh, it was a it was a naming inconvenience that uh, when we actually went public with it in February, it had to be version two because we had so many version one products out internally <laughs> that we needed to distinguish. Yeah, so we managed to confuse everybody by releasing our first commercial version as version two. So really, you're the the end users for this uh, micro framework are hardware guys. Is that true? Hardware hardware uh, products. Well, certainly. Yeah. So typically, they're OEMs. The kind of the kind of devices that we've seen uptake for this on are things like uh, lots of industrial automation, home automation, retail sorts of devices, as well as consumer devices like some of the ones we've mentioned. Things like remote controls. Um, I imagine an MP3 player would be a good uh, a good fit. We have we have one partner that's looking at MP3 players. Yeah. So so we actually launched about uh, eight months ago uh, at Embedded World, and what we've been uh, working with primarily up till now uh, in the foreground is our silicon partnerships mm-hmm. and our uh, development kit partnerships. So that we can give people uh, a robust set of uh, processor alternatives and environments to start working with the platform on, and we've had a lot of luck with that. We shipped with I think uh, three or four processor partners, and since then we've had three more that have jumped on board, and we're talking to a couple more. So, so at this point, there's already a set of a fairly wide range of processors available for uh, for uh, folks building hardware. But there, so there's two pieces to the to the micro framework, um, and one of them is probably more of interest to the .NET folks than than the low level stuff. The porting kit is uh, is the low level part, and that's what that's what does the adaptation to the uh, to the underlying hardware, uh, and that's done mostly in native code, mostly in in C C plus plus. But that's done typically by uh, the hardware vendor. Uh, and in, in the case of the development boards that are available, that's already been done by the folks that make that available. There's also an SDK that we have available. It's in a free download up at our website. And that is entirely managed code environment. Uh, so that's something that somebody can uh, download. Uh, it's a Visual Studio 2005 add-on. So once once you add it on, it, uh, it just integrates completely with and, and microframework projects become available from the from the menu system. Uh, huh. So do you have an emulator or something that you run them through? We absolutely we have a great emulation story. So it's a it's an extensible emulation story. Yeah, uh, in in embedded devices there's sort of a chicken and egg problem because you you need to define your hardware that'll support your application, but you need to have done the application before you know what the hardware is required to support it. So the emulation environment allows people to go ahead and build their applications without any hardware available. Wow. And the the yeah. emulation that runs it runs on a CLR, which is the, exactly the same code as the uh, as what runs on the small devices. That's just been ported onto the x86 instruction set. Nice. In addition to that, we have a componentized extension model, 
most of the common components already exist, things like uh, GPIO and serial and things like that. But you can then add additional components that you write to emulate any bizarre sorts of hardware interfaces that you might have. <laughs> and then the hardware itself is actually described in XML, so which includes wow. all the memory memory configurations, the LCD metrics, uh, which I, what I/O ports you have, how many GPIO pins. And so you can change all that in XML. If you want to see how you would run in two-thirds the memory, it's just one one line of XML to give so it a try. Cool. So cool. You know what this brings to mind is uh, a little technology that my friend Richard Campbell here got me interested in, oh, I don't know, a few years ago. And you probably know about this, uh, the basic stamp yeah. stuff. That's what that's what comes to mind. I know that's sort of like along the lines of education and hobbyists. But uh, what fun. This is great fun, and there, it actually uh, it actually gets even better than that because for managed <laughs> developers, uh, one of the extensions that we made, I, I mentioned the fact that we are in some ways significantly smaller, but there are things that we did which were specific to make it applicable to embedded developers. One of those was that we actually exposed the hardware in a um, in a in a managed code environment uh, in a way that you would predict to those applications at that layer. And that means that uh, managed code developers don't have to uh, don't have to go find somebody who can write a driver for them. In a wow. lot of cases, they can write the driver themselves. Wow! So I have a, I have a kiosk on my desk, which is just a a, a prototype that we did, which has a touchscreen, uh, a RFID reader, and a MagStripe reader on it. And the drivers for all of those were written in in managed code, huh. C sharp. So. So we have you have underneath plumbed in all the typical uh, buses and interfaces that you would need for SPI, I squared C, serial, GPIO, and then those are exposed in in ways that you would expect. So if you want to write to an I uh, to a GPIO, you open an instance of the I/O port. If you want to get uh, informed when something happens on that pin, you then open an instance of an interrupt port. And so you treat these things just as you would expect as, as objects, uh, uh, and, there, and there's a lot of underlying work that gets done uh, behind the covers to make sure that uh, some of the nuances of, of embedded development are, 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 are not things that people have to jump into. Yeah. Richard, what do you think, man? I'm just thinking of all the possibilities. You know, <laughs> yeah. right away, you're thinking about this sort of ubiquitous computing model where I always have a processor in a language that I understand. Uh, automatically, I'm thinking, how am I going to reach out? What are my I.O. Uh, opportunities like? How can I control a device? How can I receive some input? You know, yeah, forget about the keyboard, the mouse, other stuff. Yeah, sockets. Probably critical. Yeah, so we do have we do have socket support, uh, and one of the things one of the things we did with our initial release was we depended on our partners for their uh, for their TCP/IP stack support. Hmm. We've since changed that model, and we're our next release we're going to have uh, our native or not uh, an internal TCP/IP stack as part of it. But then we'll have socket support, and we're actually actually looking at the socket model for a variety of different wireless communications possibilities. Are you are you now you have to rewrite basically or write from scratch everything that goes into here is there anything that you can use from from the uh from either the IL or the source code to the to the framework itself as a as a starting point I mean once you have C# sharp can't you build sockets with that We actually do use a lot of their I mean we we are strict IL right out of out of yeah. uh, Visual Studio so it 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 generates okay. the same IL what happens then is we actually have an additional step, which is our metadata processor. Hmm. And it takes the IL and does a number of things with it. Uh, one is just to make the file as small as possible. Yeah. Another is to actually strip out a little bit of the metadata that's not needed at runtime. And a third thing we actually do um, is to uh, take some of the runtime validations that happen in the other runtimes, that happen at runtime, and move those into the compile time. So again, we're trying to look at, yeah. at just saving, shaving any cycles we can off of these small processors. Yeah. Do you, do you compress the the files? Absolutely, it's much smaller. And actually, you find that across a lot of the files. So our serialization is a little different, and yeah. uh, I think sure. it's I can't remember what percentage, but it's significantly smaller. Uh, and our things like our fonts are different. So we actually have a font conversion tool wow. that'll take a uh, standard uh, font and turn it into uh, 
what we refer to as a tiny font. Hey, this is Carl. I just want to take a minute out of the show to tell you about Telerik's Q2 2000 Tools update, which can be summed up this way. Blazing fast performance for ASP.NET, WPF-like visual effects for Windows Forms, and codeless reporting. The AJAX-based content editor is now 76% faster and much more intuitive. The grid also received a performance boost, plus PDF export, frozen columns, and they've even added a new awesome scheduling component. What I find even more intriguing is Telerik's Windows Form Suite. It's unbelievable that it offers WPF-like visual effects like scaling, rotation, object motion, transparencies, and so on without WPF. As a result, you could have grids, tree views, ribbons, and more with a previously impossible level of interactivity and appeal. Telerik has recently added cab support, which makes the component set a perfect fit for large enterprise applications. Lastly, with Telerik reporting, you can create advanced business reports in Windows, Web, or PDF format using pretty much design time only. Wizards, expression builders, and converters help you with the design, styling, and integration. You'll also be amazed to see some unique features, like CSS-like styling and conditional formatting. See what all the fuss is about. Download a trial at Telerik.com, and don't forget to thank them for sponsoring .NET Rocks. You know, Richard, if I ever went to work at Microsoft, I'm going to call Colin. <laughs> yeah. We do have more fun than anybody else. <laughs> I imagine. Man, this is perfect for me. This would be perfect job for me. Well, it's all yeah, the weird this places stuff. that this thing's going to turn up. Right. And, and I'm sorry. I've read the rest of your bio, Colin. We, we only read the first paragraph on the show, but I right. saw Spotwatch. Yeah. And when, when I think small device, that's about as small as it gets. Yeah. Yeah, so that, that runs in an ARM7 with a 384K of RAM. We're actually uh, looking at getting down even a little smaller than that for simple devices. Uh, and, and, and going back to the notion of ubiquitous computing, which is, which, which first got me into the spot watches and, and, and has kept me in this area, is it's, as you mentioned, it's just really exciting right now to be involved in, in the proliferation of these small devices because I see a yeah. fundamental change in the way we interact with computers when they stop being a keyboard that we go to, yeah. as you say, and they sort of disappear into the woodwork. Sure. The wearable devices, the and you know, the stuff in your car, the stuff in your house. I mean, there, there's no end to it. It knows where you are, it knows what, you know, it just it just automatically interacts with you in a way. And and the interesting things are when these devices start collaborating with each other. So communication is 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 key to this. And having uh protocols on top of just the communication protocols that allow you to to um to to create interesting collaboration. So one of the things we're doing right now, and, and this, what this gets back to is our, our whole philosophy is that uh, we're focused on productivity and these small devices, and we sort of cherry pick from the, uh, from the uh, desktop what makes sense. So the latest thing we're cherry picking is uh, DPWS or web services for devices. You know, you know, I knew you were going to say that, but, <laughs> um, but I immediately think, ugh, XML, big, bulky, you know, Overhead. What what do you do about that? Well, we keep it as small as possible. I mean, there we do want to make sure that these devices are are collaborative with even with your PC. So there are limits to what we can do there. Uh, we go through as we do with everything and cut it down to exactly what's needed for the kind of applications that we're running. Uh, and and on some of these devices, so we range, uh, you know, from a couple hundred K up to a couple meg if you actually probably load ab absolutely everything in there and need a, a very rich graphical environment for your interface as well. But uh, the cool thing that, that the, I mean, the, tr the, the positive side of the trade-off on DPWS is that, uh, now you can have scenarios where you have your, your home energy management system and you go out and buy an appliance and you plug it in and it, and it collaborates with the system. It negotiates its contract. Yeah. Uh, seamlessly in the background, and users aren't putting CDs and putting configuration things in through their PC. And you know, you know why I'm I'm so excited about this is just in the last couple of days, Colin. I I installed some hacks for my Toyota Prius. Uh huh. And I I was thinking about the whole basic stamp and the embedded thing and how they made it so easy. 
they printed a, first of all the first hack was to add like a video source to the to the monitor a video and audio input yep. and to unlock certain features in the in the uh, navigation system and all this kind of stuff and another one is to allow it to drive on only electric up to 37 miles an hour uh, for short distances until the battery needs to recharge. So, mm-hmm. so that's kind of cool. And, it, and it, it's basically just finding the things, plugging them in, and it, you get these wires with shunts and a, and a completely wrapped circuit board wrapped in rubber. Yeah. Yeah. That's just all con- so self-contained. You just plug it in and push it behind. I mean, that's the kind of stuff that I would love to know how to do. Yeah. And to be able to interface with that kind of thing. This has always been possible. It's just you're always confronted with different languages and different rules, and there's a right. big learning curve every time. Right. Yeah. So well, and that's and and looking at. I mean, one of the things when I when I was when I was in starting to work uh, in ubiquitous computing, we thought of all sorts of great things we could do, and we knew the technology was there to do them, and so we just we figured we must be the smartest people in the world because <laughs> we were thinking of dozens of things that nobody else was building. Right. And you go out and talk to people. And the problem with it is that the typical um, embedded development life cycle is several years. Yeah. Because it's hard. Got to get up to speed on everything. Yeah, you got to go find the right people to know this stuff. You have to, and you go through this 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 hardware so application sort of dance that takes several iterations, and then you have to it takes forever to debug these these fairly complex low level things. And the net result is that there's so much market risk in in investing in something that's not going to come to market for two years. That uh, the people don't do it. Instead, they uh, they do iterations on what's fairly safe and, and out there. So everybody pretty much has, has now decided it's safe to build a, a digital picture frame, and there are there are more than enough out there. So uh, I think one of the things that I'm hoping that we can do with the .NET Micro Framework is actually lower that innovation cost and increase the rate with which we start to see these these, mm. these sort of interesting applications. Absolutely. I noticed from your bio also that you uh, were a developer in natural language. So yes, it must way be back a, when. Yeah, you must be a little bit into the artificial intelligence side of it, or you know, making computers a little bit seem more intelligent. I was actually that was a that was a job way back when when I was working in databases, and the idea was to replace SQL with a just a query language that where you could just say you know you could make up your own language and would slowly understand what you were. I remember the database program called Q&A. Do you remember that? Yeah. Yeah, it had a, you could just say, like, how many gadgets in bin B in the warehouse or whatever, which figured out, yeah. Yep. So, do you see any sort of correlation? I mean, you know, I find guys like you who have a lot of these core interests tend to want to, like, group them together in these grand, you know, if I take a little bit on this and, you know, draw all this stuff together. Do you see any kind of, uh, I don't know, collaboration? Well, I, I sort of do because, and it's in an odd sort of way, because, on a, you know, one of these individual devices is not particularly uh, powerful and not powerful enough to do some of the some of the more interesting, uh, you know, uh, more more advanced ideas that you get out of like artificial intelligence, but when you start to think of uh, you know the hundreds of devices that you could have in your house collaborating in some way, yeah. Then what you need is you, ha- you need a model that actually raises above those and uh, and sort of defines the collaboration of all those devices. Uh, not unlike you know what you'd get from a multi-core environment uh, or some sort of distributed computing environment. Uh, so, so what is the the collective intelligence of all these devices, each of which only own, knows a little bit? I think is, is a very challenging thing because I think watching what's happened in the car, for instance, one of the reasons why you have so many processors in the car is I think that, uh, is that they just sort of added them on. If they need a new feature, they just add another yeah, processor. It's all about extensibility in the car. Yeah, <laughs> extensibility points. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm really, I'm really happy, uh, Colin, that you haven't brought up the refrigerator calling the grocery store for milk scenario. Because oh, okay, I'll, I'll be careful to avoid I, that one. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, that, the idea that every device in your house has an IP address, 
Yeah. I don't think the refrigerator should call the grocery no, store. I think no, you should I call the house and say, here's the current inventory. <laughs> or just show milk low on the front, maybe. There you go. <laughs> but I think you get into this sort of, you know, what is a car doing right in that model? Which is, it's not a central processor running the whole car. Yeah. It's individual processors good at their individual jobs and then reporting that back somewhere else. Real sort of distributed computing where everybody's yeah. a specialist. and. Right. These little processors, the only way to get it small and doing is to, what it's supposed to do is to keep it focused on its individual task mm. and then give it common communication protocols to go up the stack to yep. a larger management infrastructure. Right. Too fun. Yep. I want my iron to have an IP address. I'm Why? Okay with that. Why? I just don't, I don't know. Give me some more fun scenarios than the, the fridge calling for milk or the, the iron. What are you going to do with the iron? What is it going to IM you to tell you you left it on? What else can it do, really? <laughs> and while you're at it, I'm low on water. And this well, pin are, scheme? Why it doesn't bites. it just beep? <laughs> Come on. <laughs> so maybe, I think what we're playing with here, Colin, is maybe you should talk about some scenarios you've got out there with uh, with this these little uh, platforms. Right. Well, so I th there are a lot of very practical ones, but before we get to the practical ones, the, you know, there there might be a, an argument for putting an IP address and and, the, and maybe at least the plug that goes to the iron, which is that uh, you know, looking uh, down the road for energy and and here and everywhere else, there's just no way we can build out the infrastructure for the energy demands that we're that we're looking at generating. Yeah. So I'm convinced that we're all going to have a home energy management system. In our home, because that's where all the waste is, I think, right now, is, or at least the, the bulk of the waste is in residential. Yeah. The problem with that is that, you know, if you leave your iron on, you won't even notice it on your bill, but collectively across, you know, several hundred million people, uh, the impact is, is significant. So, so I, I actually see, uh, uh, a home energy system where, uh, where each of the, uh, a lot, or at least a lot of the, the, at least the big culprits like your, uh, HVAC and your Washer stove and, and things like that are, are connected in ways that they can be controlled. And they may well be controlled by your utility company. Now controlled in terms of how much energy they use? Well, the interesting scenario, yeah, how much energy they use. And the interesting scenario would be, uh, there's sort of the California version where they just say, okay, this house is going down to 80% and everything just sort of goes brown. The more interesting scenario is where, uh, where again, you go back to the notion of I have a dryer, and uh, it it has a number of power states that it can be in, and it's it's communicated that out with the home energy management system, and it says, okay, the guy's taking a shower right now. We know the hot water heater is going to have to go on, and the the dryer's already on. So let's let's just spin the dryer and not leave the heating element on, so the clothes won't wrinkle, but we also oh. won't go over the limit that the utility company just set for us. I see that you know that makes that makes good sense when appliances interfere with each other to allow them to uh, adjust in real time. Well, and yeah. to be able to set that threshold to say, you know, here you said you now you start gradiating power costs. Hmm. You yeah. say, look, if you want to consume above fifty kilowatt hours at once, the price goes up this much. So you're telling you're incentivized to tell your house, hey, I want you to keep me at this limit. Yeah, and here's the priority list. And now suddenly I'm thinking about the iron's not that outrageous a scenario. If the iron's been <laughs> left on, it's got a sensor and it says it hasn't moved in the past ten minutes, and the house says, "Fine, turn it off." Yeah, uh, you know the the other thing is I wonder if having these uh, more um, having these smarter appliances that that know when to turn off and turn on will allow you to have lower power consuming appliances because more power can be diverted to them if they run in series rather than, you know, in parallel. I don't know. I'm just thinking off the top yeah. of my head. Yeah. I mean, you can certainly use it more wisely than we currently do. Right. Interesting. And and the one scenario is that where it can save you money because you won't go into the more expensive rates. But I think even beyond that, the utility companies are just going to cap things and say, okay, at some point you can't use any more power. There is no point. more to be had. I had a sinister yep. green idea, which is, you know, it, your dryer has uh, some sort of uh, weather station on it that tells the weather. And if it's a nice day and you go to put something in the dryer, it says, hey, use the clothesline. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> what are well, you sort doing? Of, sort of apropos <laughs> of that, you know, I... I have uh, an irrigation system in my backyard, and I can't I can't figure out a way to use it effectively. The obvious effective thing would be to have something sensing the moisture in the ground. Yeah, 
instead of you know I have two options. I can just have it go by time of day, right? Or I can I can have something out there deciding whether or not it rained, which may or may not have anything to do with uh, what what the, the ground moisture is. Well, you could measure the rainfall too, I suppose, right? Yeah. Interesting. Well, there are definitely rain sensors that will tell you so that you won't sprinkle while it's raining. But if it happened to stop, you know, it's rained for 12 hours, it stopped a half an hour before your sprinklers turn on, your sprinklers still turn on. That's right. So to actually only rain when your ground needs it. Yeah. And only in the places, actually, too, because there's places under the trees that may not get as much moisture from the rain, and they may be the only place that needs it. So, smart, so I think smart, there's you know smart, there's smart. lots of things like that which fundamentally again these are things that we 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 could do to, today. Uh, it's just the economics of it uh, need we need to be a little more a little more favorable. Sure. So maybe we should move back into the workplace a bit and just thinking <laughs> okay. about where we'd have we're more processing power. Shishi, not more processing power. It's more points of processing would be useful in the workplace. I mean, obviously there's the green element of lights and HVAC and so forth. But I'm just thinking about helping people do their jobs better. Mm-hmm. Well, we have the kind of places where we've seen it. We've seen it uh, a lot of a lot of things in retail. This is this is the, uh, a particular workplace where, uh, you know, there's an interesting aspect of, of like when you go to the grocery store and they know exactly who you are just as you leave because you, the only time, point where they collect information is when you, you know, swipe your card as your affinity card as you go out the door. If there was some way for them to know who you are on the way in, then they could tell you things that are interesting to you. And uh and it may be that you're particularly, you know, you're you love grapefruit and they want to make sure that you know that there's a special on grapefruit on on aisle 3. Uh so there's there's those are the sorts of things in terms of communication with people. Um and uh, we talked a lot about home automation. Industrial automation is another area. It's actually very similar to home automation in that it's driven a lot by reducing costs. And uh, healthcare, I think, is another interesting one. Yeah. Uh, b- because the, that there, there's a system that's just dying for <laughs> for, for anything, really. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, you look at even uh, the information flow in that system is so poor. It is. Uh, that, uh, you know, my doctor writes something down on a piece of paper. And uh, that may be all the further it ever goes. It's not accessible to anybody. Yeah. Uh, if if you have a you know if you have a long term medical condition like you're a diabetic and you're taking your blood glucose, as far as I know, for the most part, you know that just gives you a little uh, reading right there on the device. And uh, to have a system where all those things were uh, were interrelated, inter- interconnected. My my wife's a nurse, Colin, and uh, she told me that um, a, about a situation that happened where she had just gotten onto her shift, and some guy who was in a room uh, had a problem, or and some doctor came in and and took him away, <laughs> and didn't say where he was going, and didn't they don't leave a note, you know, yeah. and. He told. I guess he told the person who was like the secretary there, mm-hmm. and then she gets in there, and then somebody comes in and says, "Where's the patient?" Yeah. And they're like, "Uh, I don't know." I mean, like you know, stupid things like that happen all the time. Yeah, and you know, it doesn't take much computing power at all to to make those kinds of things work. No, um, even just basic. ID tags, you know, where yeah. you could find, locate this patient. Where That's in the right. hospital is this person? Well, wouldn't that be a great little device? Like, the, you know, everybody gets admitted to a hospital, has a wrist strap on. And what if that wrist strap had a processor in it and a couple of sensors in it, and it can give you a heart rate and blood pressure and maybe glucose, and it's just saying, this wrist strap is now it's here. Yeah. So at least you know where the person is, if they're in the bathroom or something. Now, yeah. there's a, there is a field where... So much money can be saved because the the people writing hardware and software for for medical know that they're being paid by insurance companies and they just charge through the roof. Yeah, and that's just I you know I just wish I could get in there and save some money, <laughs> but I just don't have that kind of time. Yep. <laughs> well, anyway. So yes, healthcare. Uh, and what about wearable devices? Have you uh, have you gotten interest in that? Should we, I mean, do, do we need to talk about where is the spot watch now? 
Well, I'm not in the spot watch group anymore. Okay, so and, there, and there, there still is a spot watch group. There's there still is a spot watch group, and then they're, they're kind of branched out actually. Uh, so the the data, uh, you know, I don't want to steal their thunder, but I think you can expect to see that sort of data experience on other devices. Well, I'll wait uh, for the VH1 video to come out. Okay. You know, where are they now? <laughs> but you and, know, and I, that, I often I thought that the spot watch was almost ahead of its time. That yeah. you know really push the envelope for how small a device you could make and can it do enough to make that worthwhile? And you yeah. know, at the same time that it seemed like it was too big, it also didn't seem to do enough. They were just right on the bubble of what was possible. Yeah. Well, that was a lot. It was it was sort of a. Uh, an attempt to, you know, to pretty much do what you say, which is to see how small can we make something small enough and functional enough. And I think that you know that a lot of the technology is going on to do other things, like this platform now. Uh, the, the the display technology and the delivery mechanisms are actually being used in a variety of other devices as well. So I think it may uh, it may well the pieces of it may eventually survive long enough to morph into something uh, something bigger. Well, and Microsoft always seems to straddle this line so well between what is actually a product and what is an experiment. (laughs) And they try and grab the best bits and carry them forward, regardless of what actually happens. I think Spot almost fell uh, on the experimental side, even though it was kind of a product. And it's just good to see it morph into something that's more. I mean, I realize I've stopped wearing a watch. Yeah, Um, me too. I now, you know, when I need to know the time, I check my phone. Me too. Yeah. My phone is the you know the device that's always on me. Yeah. Well, that's that's definitely true. I think that uh, that was a trend that it was it was fighting, uh, which is that that young people in particular aren't wearing watches anymore. There are a lot of applications. We still we still get queries from people who are trying to build other applications on watches, and there are there are some interesting ones out there, and a lot of them have to do with with body monitoring sorts of things. Uh, certainly, there's obviously a bunch of uh, healthcare ones, but but even just things like activity. How do you how do you know how active your children are and, and send them to be as uh, more active? I got a story for you. Okay. I have uh, a 12 year old daughter who has uh, ever since she was a kid, and I think it's a genetic thing. She was a tippy toe kid, so she walked on her tiptoes. Um, from uh, as soon as she could walk, she walked on her tiptoes, and her mother did the same thing. Her grandmother did the same oh, really? thing. Blah blah blah. So I think it was genetic. Anyway, she's a ballet dancer, and uh, that's a problem when it came time for her to go up on point, which is basically where these shoes that you're on your tiptoes the whole time it puts a lot of pressure yeah. on your toes, and they have to right. So. So um, she was going to physical therapy and stuff, and I thought, and this is why I was into the basic stamp. I thought, you know, if I could make this small battery-powered device that I could, like, fasten onto her sneaker that had a sensor, a pressure sensor in the heel, and if it didn't sense pressure in the heel for a certain amount of time, it would beep or vibrate or buzz or something like that, she could wear this, and it would remind her to put her heels down. Yeah. Yeah. But just a simple thing like that is uh, is possible. Yeah, I think all that's possible. And there's, you know, again, the, the tricks to it are make it small enough, inexpensive enough, and power efficient enough. Right. Yeah, it's got to last the day. You know, that's sort of the threshold, isn't it? Yeah. Right. Well, you talk about activity monitors. I'm always fascinated by the story you hear folks just like putting a pedometer on, just something that counts their steps. Right. Yeah. And finding out how little they move around or how much uh-huh. they move around. Yeah. And I think there's a whole class of devices coming along that'll do more than that. I, I saw some of this out of the Microsoft research event back in April where they were putting accelerometers in so they could tell if you were running or walking or any of those right. sorts of things and going up a hill to help quantify how much energy you were burning. Man, I got a story about that too. Man, this is like Carl Invention Day. <laughs> and if anybody uses this and patents it, I'm, you cut me in a little bit, all right? Give me, just give me a little bit. That's all I'm saying. So I was reading today in about, um, about marathon runners who uh, they've banned iPods in one of these marathons. And I can't remember whether it's the Boston Marathon or New York or whatever, but they basically said you can't listen to your iPod because the you know runners are they become whatever they can't they don't know where they are they don't you know don't react to their environment very well they're tripping over things etc and uh, then it sort of digressed into you know well how how beneficial is it to listen to music while you're working out or running and everything and I thought 
Wouldn't it be cool to to blend music and a music player that got more intense as your heart rate went up and sort of calmed down as your heart rate went down? So it had this little biofeedback mechanism which directly influenced the music that you were listening to. And you'd have to build the music in such a way that it could work. But, you know, that's the kind of sick person I am. I think about those things. And I could actually do it if I had a spec. Yeah. You know? <laughs> well, there's, I can't really give much away, but I have a friend who's actually doing something very similar to that. Yeah, I would think you do exactly the opposite. You're trying to keep guys from heart, getting heart rate too high. So you calm the music down as the heart rate starts to get really high. But, yeah. I mean, the whole idea is just the correlation between the heart rate and the music. To assist in one way or the other is uh, right. is pretty interesting. Yeah, and you could actually just do it with the tempo of the music. So you could so you'd run to the tempo. Well, and I think uh, I got a friend of mine who has recently done that couch to 10k audio program, which is essentially that model. Is these are recordings that are timed to teach you how to run, and you wear you use your MP3 player, and it does have music involved, and there it's all the you know run for a minute, walk for a minute kind of stuff. Right. Mm -hmm. And so they're just, you know, what's missing is the biofeedback part of you're pushing yourself too hard to actually alter the content based on how your body's responding to the activity. Right. Can you imagine if we had that with .NET Rocks, you know, you and I would talk faster. We'd talk faster. We'd talk faster. (laughs) Hey, hey, that's a really good idea. Wait a minute. Hold it. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. The problem is we are very gadgety geeks. And so we're just totally enthralled by the prospects of all the things you can do with this gear. Yeah, uh, just, we are too. <laughs> yeah, is is there a Wi-Fi chipset somewhere? Like that's the one thing that uh, I could imagine we need is the easy way. It's one thing to have the TCP/IP stack, but how do you get out? Yeah. So the the uh, the what we've done up till now is is just uh, to interface with a number of existing chips. Wi-Fi is tough because it's not very battery friendly. No, no, it's not. Uh, so we, so we've used Zigbee, uh, Bluetooth. Uh, Z-Wave, a um, variety of other things. Uh, it wouldn't be difficult, actually, to uh, to connect up either with a, uh, a GPRS or a Wi-Fi. All we need is the application that, uh, that justifies it. So, uh, you know, when I look at something like the basic stamp, I see that they have these educational kits where you've got, like, all sorts of uh, sensors that you can buy and plug into the boards and all sorts of, uh, you know, little little chips and things that... They seem to have like this whole infrastructure of, of a menu of little pieces of hardware that you can clamp on. What is is there anything similar uh, for the .NET Micro Framework? Just like uh, boards that are available, or uh, sensors, maybe, or, or or parts or pieces. Like what's available today? There there are a number of boards available. A lot of the boards that are available right now are frankly not targeted at the hobbyist. Um, right. The initial boards were targeted really at the OEMs and building uh, full-up embedded devices. So, so the, the, the first ones that were out tended to be a little expensive, but just recently we started to get uh, more of more of the, the lower-end boards um, that, uh, and they, they they come in prices down to I think about one hundred and thirty-five dollars for uh, an ARM. Huh. I think it's an ARM nine. Uh, board with uh, with a uh, Ethernet connection, USB connections, uh, SD card, uh, and uh, all the power uh, and I/O that you would need. What you want to look for in these boards is something where it's going to be easy for you to interface with other devices. Now, one thing we don't have yet uh, is this sort of community of prepackaged extensions. Yeah, uh, but there are certainly things that you can go out and buy from Mouser or almost any place else. One of the samples that we have is uh, on, that goes out with the emulator is a sort of a thermostat sample, uh, which shows how, how how you would put together an application that would read from a GPIO pin the state of the, the current temperature and then respond to it. Cool. And then the person who wrote that also did a blog on, which is sort of a Make Magazine style. Uh, this is how you would actually do it, where you would buy that thermistor and how you would actually connect it. Uh, through the GPIO interfaces to your device, so you can actually go out and build that as a as an example for how you would interface a device, yeah. an external sensor. I would love to see someone pick up the ball and run with it and make a sort of educational slash hobbyist uh, set of tools, um, you know, a la Basic Stamp. Yeah. I would love to see that because uh, you know anything that can leverage the CLR or the or the .NET framework is 
is just an immediate, uh, you know, it's an immediate win. Yeah. Yeah. No, I was actually surprised when we first went to one of the companies that, uh, that we work with who work had, up to that point, all their devices had been running uh tiny OS and, uh, which is, which is actually very small and has a very poor set of tools, but has a devoted following. Uh, and we thought that they, we would get some, have to justify why we wanted to bring .NET into that environment. Got just the opposite response because it turns out that anything they could possibly do using .NET anywhere in their business, they they did. And the fact that they couldn't use it on these small devices was it was it was the last holdout because they simply couldn't use it there. So they were ecstatic that they could just standardize on it across the board. Yeah, that's great. So uh, tell us when we can play with this. Can we can we mess with it now? Uh, is it coming out uh are there there, is there a next version ahead just what's the state of it uh so we launched in february and it's available now uh at uh, msdn.microsoft.com slash embedded slash netmf and uh the the uh, the sdk as i mentioned is a free download up there Mm -hmm. we actually just did a service pack to add some more tools to it uh and the tools have to do with for people doing uh, commercial applications, they want to be able to lock down their the uh, the software on these devices, and so we've made it so that the boot bootloader won't load uh, things that don't have signatures on them, and if it finds mm-hmm. something that doesn't have a signature on it, it won't it won't start, and mm-hmm. cool. uh, and you can do that separately for the firmware and your applications. The next release uh, after that, which is coming out in a couple months, is the one with the TCP/IP stack and the the DPWS. Nice. And uh and then we have further things coming out. We have a fairly aggressive uh aggressive release schedule because we we wanted to get out, find out where people would use it and uh get their feedback. We've got lots of feedback, so we have a long list of things we want to do. Hmm. So, uh but it is available and and my what I'd encourage people to do is is it's it's very easy to try uh try out the SDK. It doesn't work with Express edition. Okay. Uh, that's, that's the discussion that we're having with the, with the dev dev group. Uh, but right now it requires at least standard. Uh, but you can, you can play with things. It has, it has sample, a number of sample, uh, emulators in it and a number of samples on those emulators. And then, uh, then it's relatively short step from there to go out. It's got great Visual Studio integration. So I think I started to talk about this a little bit, but, but when you go, when you, after you've developed your application in your emulator and you want to go to then put it on the hardware, you just connect up the, the, your piece of hardware through serial or USB or TCP IP. Sweet. Go into the properties page for the property sheet for, uh, for the micro framework and say, I want to go to the emulator instead of the, the, uh, I mean, to the hardware instead of the emulator. You download and you continue debugging as if you were still on the emulator. Can't tell the difference. Wow. So we've actually, this is, this is what's really cool about that. We've actually, in the same session of Visual Studio, had a uh, device that was talking Bluetooth to the PC, mm. and you're debugging both sides of that conversation in the same session. Mm. So you can single step through the PC code and hit a breakpoint ha- happen out, out at the uh, out at the device. Wow! So. Wow! <laughs> actually, having a breakpoint occur on the device and that's hand it awesome. back to your studio environment—that's magic. Yeah, it's all done through RPC. Yeah, subsystem. The the debugging in .NET Visual Studio is just awesome. Yeah, I mean, there's nothing that even touches it, not that I've seen. Yeah. Well, uh, Colin Miller, that brings us about to the end of our show. You have any uh, calls to action or shout outs or even promotional things that you want to mention? <laughs> well, just to get people to try it. Like I said, I think that uh, uh, I think we we try to make it as approachable as possible. So. Uh, um, you know, if, if 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 people are interested, they should be able to uh, to both try it out on the SDK and the emulation, and find it and a board that's that's useful for them. And if if you're a hardware geek and you like to tinker with electronics, um, you know maybe this is another outlet for your mad genius. Yeah. So let's let's hear from you if you're interested. Tell us what you think, and of course, uh, thank you, Colin Miller, for joining thank us. You. And uh, we'll see you. Next time on .NET Rocks.
Dotnet Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the 